0: The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So here we are, Sunday evening, in a building we call church, with a variety of characters we call family. Some of us came voluntarily, some of us were probably voluntold. Some of us know why we're here, but really couldn't articulate why. Some of us once knew, but over the years have forgotten. Lost in the rhythm or apathy we are so prone to drift in. Maybe we forgot because that seems to be something that just happens with age. We are here to sing songs, give offerings, and listen to someone read um, and explain some 3,000-year-old writings. We call this time our worship service you ever wonder why this format, why singing, why offering and preaching, should worship even be a priority at all? I mean, there are plenty of other activities we could be engaging in, volunteering in a soup kitchen, serving the actual people made in the image of God, or sitting in a duck blind appreciating nature, God's creation. Maybe just sitting at your back porch with a Bible and some worship songs playing on the radio. All of those things are good, but are deficient in some way to truly worship God. Tonight, let us look to Psalms, Psalm 96, to hear from God why we call this time our worship. And hopefully, as the Holy Spirit applies this passage to us, our worship will swell and be brimful. If you remember, um, just a few weeks ago, actually, Pastor Dressler was talking about the Ark of the Covenant and David's recovery of it. This uh, psalm was penned by David um, when they recovered the Ark or brought it into Jerusalem. I'll give you a little bit of background on the Ark before we get into Psalm 96. If you remember, God dwelt with Israel in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And Israel had lost the Ark when they went into battle with the Philistines, because they brought it as a good luck charm. Um, Philistine, or 1 Samuel chapter 4 uh, was where this is recorded, and it was an infamous day in Israel's history. They lost the ark. Hophni and Phinehas were killed. Eli died upon hearing the news of them being killed. And the wife of Phinehas gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. A tragic, tragic moment in their history. The ark was not with the Philistines long, though. Within seven months, the ark was back in Israeli possession. It was recovered to Israel, but basically nobody um, paid much attention to it. Saul left it alone, um, and it was basically until David came to the throne He was convinced that the ark needed to be put in a central place in Israel, and that would have been Jerusalem, the new capital of Israel. He wanted it there so it would be central and not relegated to some small backwater town of Israel. After some delay and some re-education about the holiness of God, through the death of Uzzah, when he reached out and touched the ark... Chapter 15 of Chronicles tells us that David, anticipating the return of the Ark to a place of prominence, he prepared a place for it, and the Levites appointed musicians, and singers, sparing no expense, that the Ark would be welcomed properly. And so David, exceedingly joyful, a witness to the physical presence of God being made central amidst his people, penned this Psalm, Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth, sing unto the Lord and bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigns. The world also shall be established that it should not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He shall judge the earth with righteousness and the people with his truth. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. We see at the beginning in verse 1, a command to sing a new song. The command to sing is repeated three times in the two verses with rapid fire succession. What is being implied in the command to sing is that there is now a reason for singing. It comes with urgency. Sing, sing, sing. The Lord is referred to four times In the first two verses, he is quickly established as the subject to whom we sing. When God comes to us, we as his people are called to respond or break forth in song and worship. I think about how this applies to our current Christmas season, when God came as a man, Jesus, in the mystery of the Incarnation. All God, but all man. These thoughts should bring us to our knees in worship. Do you long to sing his praises? Sing unto the Lord, all the earth, says at the end of verse 1, all the earth. Introduced here is one of the main ideas of, of the text. From the creation of the whole world to the judgment of all the nations, the story of redemption told in scriptures is a global one. It is not finite. It is not about a local deity. It is not about a personal deity, the world is being called to worship the one true and living God. Missions are integral to worship. Verse 2. Bless his name. It says, sing unto the Lord and bless his name. What does that mean, to bless the Lord? It carries with it a concept of humble posture, a posture of kneeling, of bowing and adoration, It is a physical image of a spiritual reality. When we see the character of the Lord defined in Scripture, and when we see our own depraved character exposed by the law of God, it should crush our pride. When we see the depths of the perversions of this world, and when we see the reaches of God's love and grace to rescue us from the pit and the mire, it should bring us to our knees. Our worship should be reverent. We should not dare to worship God casually. At the end of verse 2, it says, Show forth his salvation from day to day. Show forth or proclaim very quickly God's salvation should become our loudest promulgation, which means to make it known publicly, to be our formal declaration, the confession on our lips, the song in our hearts, at home, in the workplace, the market, on the road. Our conversation should be peppered with the Lord's salvation. Do you proclaim his salvation daily? It is also a call to see the works of God anew. His mercies are new every morning. So should our worship be. We are forgetful creatures, so the scripture continually calling us to remember. Put up verses on the walls of your house, or wherever you'll see them, and read them. We can be extremely crafty at acquiring the desires of our flesh, and we need to pursue holiness with the same skill and energy. Verse 3 starts with declare his glory. The word used for declare carries with it the sense of scoring with a mark, making a visible tally or record, like a notch on a belt, enumerating with intention. Intention to what? With the intention of recounting. Glory, as most of us know, is a term for weightiness or heaviness or importance. Is God's glory markedly evident in our lives? And when we worship, or do we even consider it? Who should it be evident to? The heathen, of course. Declare his glory to the heathen. The end of verse, or in the middle of verse 3. Our ongoing testimony of the centrality of Christ in our lives should not be withheld from unbelievers, but rather proclaim his lordship unashamedly. Are we afraid? What shall we fear? Our only fear should be that we diminish the glory that the Lord so rightly deserves. For He is, and for who He is, and what He has accomplished. Obedience to His commands is the way that we glorify Him and make Him central. Declare His wonders. Specifically, the wonders of the Lord are those things that belong exclusively to Him. In His creation, we see the intricacies of biology, the particulars of physics, and the awesomeness of cosmology. These belong to God alone. In his providence, we see the wisdom of his planning, the marvelousness of his appointments, and the fullness of his deliverance. In his redemption, we see the scope of it, the depth of it, and the grace of it. In his judgment of the lost and the correction of his children, we see his love and justice. Each of these things are individually enough to bring us to a place of reverent awe. We should declare his wonders. Verses 4 and 5 together. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. After considering his wonders, what else can be said but the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Then the psalmist contrasts what we know of our God to the lifeless idols of the nations. These idols do not create and not do anything. They need a created thing to even make them. The word idol literally means of nothing or worthless. There simply is no comparison to the living God. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary The Lord's honor is like a privileged guest of whom we are not worthy to entertain. The Lord's majesty is like a wonder that cannot be fathomed or understood, producing awe in our hearts. The Lord's strength is that which holds us, keeps us, protects us, and saves us. And the Lord's beauty is like that of the rising sun or the expanse of the cosmos, a beauty not fleeting like so many other beauties, but static and deeper than the oceans. Think especially of the beauty of His grace seen at the cross. So sublime, if the record of it not be contained in His Word, we would scarcely believe it to be true. This is the God we come to worship. What then is the next logical inclusion to our worship? Does anybody see it in verses 7 to 9? Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord glory, the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. The word give or ascribe is found three times in two verses. You can't have a reason to sing without it leading to giving. And as an aside, notice in verse seven the designation of the people. It says, O ye kindreds of the people. And the families of the nations. Notice the whole. You have the peoples and the nations. And then there's the particular, the kindreds and the families. Worship is inseparably communal. And there are no lone ranger Christians. The Lord is not worshipped in an individualistic fashion. We come together for worship. And worship is global. Verse 8 mentions the glory to his name. His name here literally means the name. It is so above, so transcendent, so holy. But only one is known as the name, the I am. Only one deserves our worship. And all glory belongs to him. At the end of verse 8, it says to bring an offering. Three years ago, my wife and I visited an older woman that lived in Cuba. Half of her home, the roof blew off in Hurricane Sandy. And for several months, they lived with their home exposed to the elements We stayed for a short visit and took a quick tour of her home and the devastation. And when we were about to leave, she ran over and said, Hold on, I have something for you. And she gave us a gift, just some seashells. We graciously accepted them and marveled. We didn't come expecting anything from her. Um, But we came into her home empty-handed and left with a few beautiful shells. The Lord has given gifts To us all. In fact, he has blessed us with more than we can know. Do you think that my wife and I would have returned to her house a second time? With nothing to bring her? No. We would have brought something to give her for her kindness. Why then would it be okay to come and meet the Lord and not bring a gift? We should bring an offering. Verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. This is an imperative, a command. Worship in the beauty of holiness. You could also say, Worship in holy attire. Be clothed with holiness. <clears throat> the sense of the words referred to the special clothing worn by the priests in the temple. They had to be prepared for worship. The only proper way to know if you are presentable is to look in a mirror. Some of us may have to squint a little, but nonetheless, we need to examine ourselves with God's word to know if we are clothed in the beauty of holiness. Looking in the mirror should be a regular occurrence. Don't neglect your responsibility to examine yourself before coming to worship. Verse 9, fear before him all the earth. The end of verse 9. The word fear is literally to tremble. and can be used <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. to describe a woman in labor. Again, we see how it's not okay to be casual with God. Jesus is not your boyfriend. He is not your homeboy. Jesus is Lord. Verse 10. The Lord reigns. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigns this verse actually stands alone in the original language as its own straw or stanza it's as if the whole song is leading up to this one verse. the verse is swollen with evangelism it's the second time we are commanded in the chapter to verbally communicate to unbelievers the truth about God <clears throat> But this verse is specific about what truth, the truth that God is sovereign over the affairs of the whole earth, and that the Earth will not be moved off its course. The plans and purposes of God will not be thwarted. That is a most extremely comforting thought for believers. As believers, we are comforted by God's promises of grace and mercy founded in Christ, in faith in Christ. But think of what it means for the unbeliever. The Lord promises to judge the people righteously or rightly with justice. And justice is a most terrifying concept if you understand it. If you are here tonight and not a believer, do not think that upon judgment day your good deeds will outweigh the bad. Even if you had any good deeds to speak of, you would still be on the hook for every transgression of God's law for which the punishment is death. Matthew 25:46 says and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into life eternal and finally brings us to verses 11 to 13 that are read together let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad let the sea roar in the fullness thereof let the field be joyful and all that is therein Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Let all of creation rejoice. After the great command to proclaim that God will judge all people in verse 10, we see the song close in a fulfillment of how it began. It started with a universal call to worship. And here at the end, we see the future hope. When all of creation is found full of joy and enjoined in the praise and worship of God, it is a complete and utter worship experience. All the heavens, the sea, the fields, and the trees, all the fullness therein. The fullness therein means everything in those things. All that is in the heavens, all that is in the sea, and in the fields, and in the trees. What will bring about this joy the right judgment of God. Why does this cause everything in creation to rejoice? Because it is the consummation of the full extent and reality of Christ's work of redemption. I'll say that again. It is the consummation of the full extent and reality of Christ's work of redemption. It is a complete fulfillment of God's plan to make all things right, to establish his kingdom with power, it is heaven, the redemption of the saints by God's grace, where all tongues will confess Christ as Lord, and he will finally receive the glory which he is due. The only way that God is sufficiently praised is when all of creation is employed in worship. And to answer why we come to worship service, we become we come because this is the act of glorifying God. It is an expression of reverence and and adoration towards God, when we set aside the earthly activities of our daily lives and view God in his rightful place. We sing because he's given us much to sing about. We give because he's given us much. and We promote missions because worship is commanded for all creation. John Piper said, missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. At the end of the story, there won't be missions. Just worship. Look forward to that day when all of the groaning of fallen creation will turn the glorious praise of God and brimful into eternity.